Welcome to the UDIA Queensland's Development Drum Podcast, where we speak to members and ask them to share some property industry insights and at the same time, get to know our industry colleagues a little better. My guest for today is Michelle Wooldridge, Queensland State Manager at Cedar Woods. As Cedar Woods Queensland State Manager, her role circles around the delivery of state existing portfolios as well as working towards growth aspirations for Queensland and acquisition of new projects. In addition to coaching and mentoring the Queensland team, Michelle participates in national initiatives and leadership for the Cedar Woods executive team. Michelle hails from a background in property after a decade at Lendlease overseeing urban regeneration projects, including Brisbane Showgrounds, Hurston Quarter, Cancross Morningside and Cross River Rail, as well as Yarrabilba, a 15,000 lot master plan community. Michelle holds a Bachelor of Business with distinction and is a member of the Institute of Chartered Accountants. Thanks for joining us today on The Development Drum, Michelle. Thank you for having me. And we did neglect to mention the triplets in that intro as well, which I'm sure is a major part of your life. Yes, it is a big part of my life, that's for sure. It keeps me busy. I bet it does. Now, Michelle, you have a background in working across both major urban regeneration projects and also greenfield projects, which just seem very diverse in terms of their planning, delivery and execution. Can you talk us through some of the different challenges that exist across those two different landscapes? Yeah, so I guess my history has probably been more so urban regeneration, having spent 10 years at Lend-Lease on their kind of bigger projects in Queensland and then was exposed to master plan communities with Yarrabilba, which you know is obviously one of the biggest master plan communities probably in Australia. So yeah, they are very, very different. I actually really like having a bit of both. A bit of both, yeah. I find that urban regeneration is very complex, yes. I guess, and they're big projects, they're hard projects that you need to be very resilient on, I think. And it's a long time between wins sometimes on those projects. So in planning for a long time, mm. a lot of upfront heavy infrastructure. And so I like having a bit of both in the portfolio. And that's what I guess really attracted me to Cedar Woods. Yes. They do both. So I think I would say the one thing is probably just the complexities around the urban regeneration side and the constraints that yes. you're often facing. So a lot of those master plans are constraint-led because you kind of come to a logical answer either due to infrastructure or you're constrained by a road or something like that. And I think, you know, the one thing we used to always kind of comment on projects like the showgrounds was just how many things need to align to pull Mm. something off. So, you know, a commercial office, you need to get an anchor, pre-commit tenant, you need to get a construction price, you need to get a capital partner. So there's a lot of things that you're working on in parallel to pull them off and bring those developments out of the ground. I guess as well, just bigger in scale. Yes. So apartment towers are 300 or 400 Mm. apartments in a stage. So the capital is huge. Yes. Um, So you're very big on risk profile and how downsides protected, all that kind of stuff. I guess then as well, it was interesting when I was first put on Yarrabilba, just seeing the size of the community that was out there and that was delivered from nothing. Yes. So it's very different in that you are literally a blank sheet of paper. Mm. And I remember Ken Toe, who was someone I worked with for a long time, he used to quite often comment that the master plan community is kind of harder because it is a blank canvas yes. and it's up to you to generate, I guess, the vision and yep. what's the point of difference for yep. the site. So, yeah, they're very different. 
both have the challenges, I think. And I think I also kind of find when one market's on, the other yeah. one's kind of off. Yeah. So that's also nice to have the balance of the two because obviously the master plan communities is much more price pointed, mm. owner, first home buyer, whereas your urban region is just different markets. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to have that balance when the market's always got something challenging going against us. Yes. And so, again, that's nice to have that kind of diversity of your portfolio. Which is more difficult to navigate from a community perspective? Hmm, well, I would say the urban region. Yeah. And I think project that is now seen as the benchmark, I think, for Queensland, if not Australia, is West Village. Mm. And I always speak so highly of Andrew Thompson mm. from Fluent Properties and what he did there. And you think of the acceptance of that project now and how much everyone talks to West Village, that project had such a rocky start. We all forget, don't we? Yeah. It seems like a lifetime ago, but yeah. it really wasn't. Yeah. And I just think when you're in those urban environments, people have very strong views. I think in the master plan communities, they're different in terms of it's normally anti-development, anti kind of the smaller lot mix, you know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think it, it feels a bit more I don't know, not personal, but is more personal to the project, I yes. guess, in terms of the community resistance to some of those projects. But then you look at West Village and I just think it's such a success of now the community loves that project. Yes, so and it's made such a contribution to that local community. Totally, yeah. totally, yeah. Yeah. Now, the last 12 months, there's been a few challenges. Mm, just let's, a few. <laughs> let, let's not lie about it. Cost, trades, weather, mm. a war, mm. and some fairly significant product supply shortages have made it a really difficult time to bring product to market. As a state leader of an ASX company, how have you worked through those challenges? Mm, Seamlessly? No, (laughs) (laughs) not at all. Not at all. And um, I think it has, like a lot of people refer to the last 12 months as the hardest time in the development of their career. Mm. And, you know, we're talking about people like Bruce Harper, who've been in this industry for years and years. So I think we can't underestimate the size of the challenges and I think the challenges are still there. We talk a lot about there's a lot of pre-sales where developers have sold all this land. Now we've got to deliver it. I think what has been really hard is to just get certainty on program and budget and they're kind of two things that Development 101 is. A little bit critical, aren't they? Totally. And so I think for us on some of our projects, like we are being purposely conservative in terms of our delivery timeframes because we would rather under-promise and over-deliver. So I think we've learnt our lesson there. Normal timeframes don't exist anymore. No, they don't. Something that used to take 20 weeks now takes 40 weeks. And we actually had a really good presentation from the guys at Shabforce who are our contractor on Ellendale, just working through like the layering of impacts Mm. and how it has just resulted in a perfect storm. Like I think the war in Ukraine, just what that's done Mm. to the costs and material supplies and then you overlay that here locally with the flood impact yes you kind of sit back sometimes and go is that real but then when you unpack it all it it absolutely is real Mm. so I think that's where we've found consumers like the customers like they're just so sick of hearing about the delays and they're sick of 
the COVID excuse, but, you know, things are still popping up that you're getting material supply issues on something that we didn't have an issue with four weeks yes. ago. Yeah. So I think it's an industry at the moment that we're under like heightened pressure. Mm. I think the next 12 months are going to be really tough. Yeah. And I think our focus is delivering on what we said we would do, which is, you know, delivering these people their homes. And a big focus for us as well is really compressing that time from when we make the first sale in a stage to when that settlement comes in. So I think it's a recognition that you've got to invest the capital yes. to start construction before you start selling because a big part of the master plan community market is obviously locking in their builder. Yes. And when you're delivering stock nine months away, there's no certainty for them on price. Mm. Yeah, it's a very tough market. It's an incredibly difficult time, isn't it, too? Because you say about bringing that timeline in, but it's very hard to do that at a time when you're also countering the sheer emotion an urgency that people have around wanting to get into property or move mm. properties. It's been, you know, I don't think there is, as you say, a developer in the game that hasn't experienced that firsthand. And you want to be able to deliver for the consumer. Mm. You want to be able to have something to offer. Mm. But I think the moment when I realised the gravity of the situation was when I looked at some of the, our larger members who normally have land supply and releases across a number of different corridors, different size lots, different price points, had nothing yep. on their stock book. Totally. And that's where, you know, I reflect back quite often to just what happened in the industry. I was at Yarra Bilber at the time and we were, the whole Logan Corridor had so much stock mm. on our balance sheet that had been registered and titled for probably six months, 12 months that, you know, wasn't selling. The market was so quiet. Mm -hmm. It was really difficult to get visibility on what your sales pipeline would be for the next month because the inquiry just wasn't there. Yeah. And then this stimulus came in and everything just well, kind of walked out the door mm -hmm. and you probably increased your sales by, you know, three or four times what you would normally do in a month. So yes. I think when you look back on it all, you understand how we've kind of all been a little bit caught off guard. And that's why a lot of, yeah, the developers that I talk to, like, this is a catch up here. Mm -hmm. This is all about delivery. Yes. And so in some respects, the softening in the market is a good thing. Yes. Because I think, the diligence and the robustness in just getting back to the basics of program price and yes. just bringing those kind of fundamentals back to how we develop is really important because I think it just all got a bit out of control. Mm. I heard a, a developer the other day liken it to a situation like when a python might swallow a pig <laughs> and that's what we're grappling with at the <laughs> totally. moment, the pig working its way through the system, which yep. I'm not sure I can unsee that. <laughs> but. Well, and I think the challenge is though, like when we also talk, there's still pent-up demand. Yes. There's a confidence, like whilst we're in this kind of blip at the moment, I think there is this underlying feeling Absolutely. that we, it is going to be a short and sharp recovery. Mm. And so like when you kind of talk about getting your house in order, you've got to do it quickly, quickly because interstate migration, like I think we're all still very confident on our fundamentals in the yeah. even short term. Mm. I think this is just a six to 12 month kind of blip. Just the capacity, I guess, in terms of contractors I just like trades, where have they gone kind of thing. Yeah. Um, truck drivers. Yes. For that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how the whole industry responds, I think, because obviously one thing we do have is a lot of big infrastructure projects. Mm. You know, we know the Olympics is coming and that is going to require things to be upgraded. It'll be interesting. There's a lot on the horizon. Mm, there is. 
Now, you have a fairly small Queensland team, as most development companies operate with. What's your approach to building and maintaining culture within that team? Hmm. So I have a team, yeah, probably about 12 to 13 staff at the moment. We're looking to grow, which is exciting. Um, That's one of the things that I guess attracted me to Cedar Woods was just their appetite for growth in Queensland. And, you know, I think in small teams like that, it's like the culture is really important. So I think for me, I am very open book, very transparent with my team. And so recently, like about four weeks ago, we just moved office. Yes, how exciting. It was great. So we were in Blue Tower in the city there, great location, but not a great office fit out. And so I was really excited to see, I guess, the transformation and the engagement in the team when we went into the new office. So we got to design the office with Archway, who were awesome. And then our landlord delivered it for us. And so we've gone full agile. You know, one of the decisions in that was I didn't want an office. I wanted us to be, I wanted me and the rest of the senior team to be out on the floor with the team. And I guess as well, just being really open with the team around some of the challenges that we're having. So um, not shying away from those conversations and that, you know, some of the decisions that we've had to make have been hard on me too. Like I think we're all just people at the end of the day. And so having that empathy around the challenges that we're going through and the impacts that that's having on everyone, I think is just important to acknowledge. Yes. And I think for me as well, I am big on flexibility and making sure that we've got a couple of people in the team that have got young families and so making sure that if those dads want to go home and do bed and bath, they feel like they can do that. Um, and are very much encouraged to. Totally encouraged to. It's the worst time of day. Yeah. No. <laughs> right. I mean, it's the greatest time of day. End is near. But it's important that I think through COVID, like our work and personal lives have integrated more than ever. Mm. And so... I just feel like it's really important that you get your work done in a way that suits you and fits in with your life because I just think there's a fair bit going on and the more you can support people to do those things outside of work that float their boat, that's a good thing. Yeah. Now, is the new office space dog friendly? It is actually. Oh, well done you. Yes, it is. Um, I don't think they'd had that request before. Yes. um, But we did check with that because, yeah, we actually are setting up a dog calendar. Oh, that is sensational. Yeah, so. um, So, so, Now, there seems to be two different schools of thought. Do you have one day a month where all the dogs come in, which to me just sounds. chaotic. Yeah, I'm not sure anyone is ready. So I'm a bit judgy on staffies. A couple of people in the team have staffies and I've said I won't bring my dog in with a staffie. Could they be muzzled? (laughs) (laughs) Because they jaw lock. So, um, and we've actually, I think um, even Maddie, like her dash hounds sound, they weren't in when I was there, but apparently they were a bit aggressive. Oh, okay. Which um, they can be, can't they? I think um, that's why we've got the calendar so that if someone wants to bring their dog in, they've got that day. Yeah. Because we've got a deck as well. Oh, how gorgeous. Yeah. So it'll be fun. But yeah, I think, you know, even those kind of things, like they're great for culture. Yeah. Yeah. So no, dog friendly. Yes. Yeah. Our office space is not, despite our, well, my repeated and some of the team's repeated attempts, but um, I don't know how my dogs would go. I think there would be chaos and pandemonium. So I'm just also a little bit cautious of opening that door, but yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Your landlord needs to get up with the times, I think. Yeah. Have the dog. Have the speech. So 
You obviously don't have a staffy or a Dutch hound. What have you got? I've got a Spoodle. Oh, yeah. excellent Raffy. choice. He's, excellent yeah. choice. He's interesting. Is he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's good value. That's um, very cute. Yeah, he is cute. Yeah. Now, you originally completed an undergraduate degree in business. Mm. Why property? Mm. I'm not a traditional pathway and I always never really got that, I guess, but I get it now because I obviously fully see, you know, the pipeline of talent, how they come through and it's not normal to come from a finance background. So I was with KPMG originally and I loved KPMG. It was a great kind of work hard, play hard culture, very engaging, high performance, you know, that kind of culture. And then when I wanted to go out into commerce, I worked with Cement Australia, which was great in Mm. terms of my first move, Yes, but I didn't resonate with the product. And so I think it was just a bit of a cultural shock to go from something so innovative in terms of the work you're doing at KPMG to a manufacturing business that was trying to, um, like manufacturing was on the way out. Mm. And so I started with Lendlease as a finance manager on um, the showgrounds. So, and I think as well, you know, property One, I think you can resonate with it because Mm. people get property, get apartments, get commercial office. And I think as well, it is a lot about the numbers in terms of like risk, efficiency of floor plates, all that kind of stuff. And I think actually one thing that has always resonated with me was someone that said with property, you get to be CEO at a much younger age right. because if you think about your project, you are the kind of little CEO for yes. your project. Yes. You get to be across it all, sales, marketing, design, finance, legal risk, mm. whereas if you are in banking or something like that, you've got to be 55 or 60 probably yes. before you're a CEO. So I think that's where when you're entrepreneurial, you're business-minded, I think it kind of allows you to, I guess, foster all those kind of components of what you like about development and property development. And I guess too, there would be, and I'm about to ask you about your favourite project, so you, you do need to pick a child. Yeah. Um, but there is that very real and very tangible attribute too with property, which is you can see, feel and touch what yeah. it is that you've been involved in. Yeah. And I imagine that's part of the allure. Totally, totally. And that's why I think, you know, you look at King Street and the showgrounds there, like when I started working on that, it was like a a vacant Mm. block. There was nothing there other than old buildings that ended up getting demolished. And you look at it now and there's a high street and hotel and it's a whole new place. So it is pretty amazing to be a part of that. Yeah, And that's where I think, you know, always say to Tomo how proud of himself he should be on West Village because like what he's delivered there and with his team has completely mm. like reshaped West End, yeah. which is pretty amazing. Transformative. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. They're never easy, are they? No, they're not. <laughs> no, knowing the history of Ellenbrook, yep. King Street, Reville. Yep. They're it's hard all, yards. It's all hard. Yeah, it's totally hard. And I think that's where with property, there's always something going against you, even on commercial office. Like, yeah, cap mm. rates have been great, but incentives have been so high. And now we've got construction cost issues. Like, it's just there's always something to overcome. But I think that's what I like about it is it's always problem solving. So no one day is the same. And I think especially when you've got a portfolio of projects that are all very different. And I think that was one thing where... I was on the showgrounds, but like it's just that's kind of like one market for the whole life of that project. So I kind of prefer to be in a couple of different markets as opposed to 
one big project. Yeah. The war cry of developers seems to be, though, that if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. So Totally. And I think that's where a lot of people, we were talking about this the other day, that everyone thinks just because they've got a house that you can do it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think I probably took for granted, I guess, my background and how much I got exposure to that gave me the skill set to do what I was doing, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Incredibly important part of developing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's right. Um, Now, you did say every day is different. What's a typical day? Talk us through a typical Michelle day. Oh, A typical day, gosh, it would be, I feel like at the moment we're just running from meeting to meeting at the moment. So I would say a typical day is always, there'll always be an issue on a project that you've got in delivery and then looking at acquisitions. Yes team stuff as well. Moving into the new office has been, you know, a big probably distraction, but it's a good distraction, but I'm glad to have that behind us now. And we're starting to settle. Yeah, I think a lot of it is probably delivery. Like you're always looking at what are we working through, like on Ellendale with lots that we're we're trying to deliver and how can we accelerate them and work with our customers. But then also looking at strategic positioning of that project. So yes. it's always kind of you're looking at the here and now, but then you're always having to look at the future. So that's what my day kind of comprises of. And it just depends on which project I'm working on on each day. I just, I don't think I have a typical day. <laughs> it's probably good. That's yeah, it is good. Part of the fun. Yeah. Talk me through acquisitions at the moment. It must be incredibly difficult to find land. And there seems to be this constant battle of up versus out and which one is right now. Mm. I think it's going to take both, right, to Mm. accommodate a growing population. What's it like out there on the ground? Yeah, acquisitions are very difficult at the moment because it is so hard to predict what's going to happen in terms of cost base and I think revenue. Yes. So I guess from our perspective and we're working on a couple of opportunities that are more relationship-based. And I guess structuring the agreement that governs how those relationships are going to work and how that will set us up for success, I guess, in delivering that project as opposed to coming in and participating in an on-market opportunity where I guess, you know, six months ago there would have been 30 people probably, um, you know, in the same race. I just don't think that's something that we're interested in participating in at the moment just because your probability of success is low. I think the other challenge is, is just landowner expectations on revenue and and what they're going to get for their land. So, yeah, I think that's where over the next six months we'll get to a position where we can put a hand around Mm. costs and revenue with certainty. Yeah. But I think it's made it quite difficult to put together acquisitions where you're buying them on market, buying the land at a strike price today. Yeah. Mm. Yes, it seems to be there's a fair level of uncertainty there and it's it's been interesting watching the interstate developers – as they do in waves, come to Queensland yep. um, over the past 12 months in particular. Be interested to see how that plays out. I agree because I think when you look at the developers who are doing really well, they are locally led. Yes. I think that's one thing we talk about a lot is just how different the Brisbane market is and I quite often will reference the likes of Aria, Mosaic and I just think that they're great examples of developers that have raised the bar yes. in terms of what gets delivered and yes. what's expected now in southeast Queensland, which I think is a great outcome. It was interesting. I was talking to someone the other day and we were just saying how you can see the developers that don't know the local market 
it just misses the mark. Because I think there are, and we always like to think that we're unique up here to to counterbalance other narratives that may play out. But it is, I think, customer expectations are very different up here to what they might be in particularly Melbourne and Sydney, which is generally our comparators. Yeah, I agree. I think so too. And that's why I think it'll be really interesting build to rent. Mm. I'm a big advocate for build to rent. I think it'll be great to see some of the examples of that getting delivered on the ground, the ones that are genuine build to rent, designed as build to rent and delivered as build to rent, because I think that's got a massive opportunity for Brisbane Yeah, for future. I think in particular seeing the current rental vacancy crisis just shows Mm. us that we've perhaps become a little bit off guard or we are off guard in terms of facilitating that regular pipeline of supply, Mm. particularly for rental and investment stock. Totally. And that's where I think you look back at Bowen Hills and Mm. the oversupply that happened there and there hasn't been a lot of investment products delivered since then. Yeah. But that's where I think, you know, you look at ARIA, like they still have high investor. Mm. It's good product that um, that's where it's quite often when you talk about investor versus owner-occupier, I feel like if it's good product, it will kind of stand the test of time. Um, I think investor expectations have changed over time too. I agree. Um, they, from our research, they want a, a quality product to attract quality tenants mm. and to make sure that their tenants are happy. So generally they're not purchasing anything that, they wouldn't feel comfortable either living in themselves or their family living in, which I think is a positive thing. I think so too. I think so too. Yeah. Now, thinking back to your 20-year-old self, Mm. not that long ago, (laughs) (laughs) what piece of professional advice would you give yourself? I think probably one is someone gave me this advice that it's a long life and it's a long game. I think I was very ambitious. I'm still ambitious but I was so focused on my career. Yes. I've done a lot of work with an executive coach who I love and she's made a massive difference to me. But she quite often will say to me, Michelle, you put so much focus and energy on the professional side of your life. There's so much more to life than Mm. that. And, yeah, I probably wish I learnt that 10 years ago. Earlier. Um, But at least I'm learning it now, I guess. So it's a long life and there's more to it than just... Your career. I just guess. work. Yeah, just yeah. work. It's a big part of our lives, isn't it? But it's um that balancing act can very quickly and easily tip. Yeah. And I think it's a healthy realization to go, yes, you can still love your work, care about your work, but it is it's, it's not everything. It's, it's not everything. Not it a- is just a job at the end of the day. And you want to do it well and you want to be engaged, but you don't want to ignore other components of your life as a result. Yeah, absolutely. I think that produces a better employee or employer at the end of the day too, doesn't it? Yeah, I agree, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. When netball is life, yeah. work will all be okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. Thank you so much for your time today, Michelle. I know it is challenging conditions out there, but thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. It's been wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you for listening to the UDIA Queensland's Development Drum podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Remember to rate and review this show on your favourite podcast app. While you're there, please make sure you click subscribe so you don't miss an episode.